0: listening to a reading of the book Disrupting Mercy by Matthew C. Clarke and Annabella Rossini Clark. The book was published in 2022 and this reading is being distributed as a series of podcasts narrated by the author Matthew Clark. Footnotes and bracketed references to verses in the Bible have mostly been omitted to make the reading flow more conversational. I assume if you want to study the fine details you'll read either the printed or the e-book versions which are available from many online booksellers including Amazon. Biblical quotes are nearly all taken from the New Revised Standard Version. Chapter 7 Sin and Forgiveness An initial thought to ponder please wander through the archives of The Forgiveness Project. Their website, www.theforgivenessproject.com, contains over a hundred stories of people who have lived through abuses and tragedies and who have experienced the magic of forgiveness. Do any resonate with you? How does that experience of forgiveness affect both the ones who were injured and the ones who caused those injuries? As an American civil rights activist, the Reverend James Lawson demonstrated how nonviolent resistance can confront personal and systemic sin. He was a colleague of Martin Luther King, the trainer of many who defied racial segregation laws in the USA, and in later life a pastor with the Methodist Church. Lawson spent time in prison for refusing to serve in the military forces during the Korean War and then learned about the non-violent approach of Gandhi while working at a college in India. By 1958, aged 30, he was teaching nonviolent strategies for social change to college students in Nashville, Tennessee. At that time, many restaurants in the USA still had segregated eating counters. To challenge that practice, groups of students started deliberately sitting at counters, clearly labelled as whites only, and demanding service. Lawson was a major facilitator of these sit-ins and was very keen to ensure that the protesters acted non-violently. Through lectures, workshops and role-playing, he instilled a deep sense of discipline into the movement so that even when taunted, verbally abused, physically attacked or arrested, the participants would remain respectful and non-violent. If people did not feel able to maintain that stance, they were asked not to join the protest. A student of James Lawson's, David Dark, recounts an incident during one such sit-in at Nashville in nineteen sixty. Quote One Saturday, Lawson was on the scene to coach students and to dissuade white passers-by from responding violently to young people wholeheartedly and whole bodily committed to non-violent witness. Lawson approached one aggressor in a motorcycle jacket at the centre of the group who'd kicked Bernard Lafayette and Solomon Gort. The man directed a racial slur at Lawson before spitting in his face. Reverend Lawson regarded the aggressor calmly and asked if he might have a handkerchief. The man was so taken off guard that he handed it to Lawson before he even knew what he was doing. As Lawson thanked him and wiped his face, he asked the man if a nearby motorcycle belonged to him. It did, and in no time they were discussing horsepower. Within a few minutes, the man was asking how he could aid Lawson and the students in their work. The script had been flipped. I once asked Lawson how one might develop the habit of handling people so beautifully, and he responded, as if it was just then occurring to him, you have to keep in your mind an imagery of infinite possibility. End of quote. Lawson's request for a handkerchief disarmed his opponent. Although the man approached Lawson as though the two were enemies, Lawson's eye contact and verbal interaction as equals disrupted the man's script and led to a complete turnaround in his thinking. This is the effect Mercy hopes for. Beyond the role Mercy plays in addressing a person's immediate need, Mercy hopes to be transformative. By treating his abuser with dignity and respect, Lawson prompted him to rethink whether they really were enemies. Once the enmity was disrupted, he could start to treat Lawson with dignity and respect. Interactions like that show how a posture of mercy can foster forgiveness and reconciliation in contexts of conflict, hatred and hostility. Maintaining an imagery of infinite possibility enables us to draw out from someone the best of their humanity rather than escalating the negative influence of sin. Marcus Borg sees this movement from sin to forgiveness as one of the key macro stories in the Bible subheading, the concept of sin. These days, sin is a problematic word. As a category imposed on one person by another, it is a moral judgment, often designed to induce shame in order to control. Yet the theme of sin in the biblical account points to something central in universal human experience, the sense of personal inadequacy. Some brokenness comes from external circumstances and what is done to us, But the personal aspect of sin highlights the reality that part of our brokenness arises from within. To the extent that sin refers to something internal and personal, it points to our own capacity to cause damage to ourselves as well as to others. Because sin affects other people, it inevitably includes a social dimension. As Cornelius Plantinga evocatively notes, sin vandalizes shalom. Through sin, our relationships with other people are damaged, as are our relationships with God, with the earth, and with our own being. That brokenness bubbles upwards and creates broken systems that in turn oppress and misuse. The bi-directionality of sin, bubbling upwards from the personal to the systemic and flowing downwards from the systems to individuals, is very clear in the arena of modern slavery. Modern slavery, or human trafficking, occurs when one person abuses or exploits another in coercive ways that severely restrict the person's freedom. The sin of modern slavery is fundamentally about broken relationships, the denial of shalom. In effect, the exploiter is saying to their victim that they are unimportant, a mere object for their own gain, rather than a real person with a right to be treated with dignity. But at the same time as coercive acts dehumanise the victims, they also dehumanise the perpetrators. The people who abuse, coerce and exploit lose their own sense of worth, their own moral integrity, their own ability to experience empathy and their ability to either give or receive mercy. This vandalism of God's image ripples throughout society. Families are drawn into cycles of abuse, Generations are trapped in debt bondage. Some victims later become traffickers themselves. Law enforcement becomes corrupted and abusive practices become institutionalized. That is the bubble-up effect, where individual sin aggregates into systems of injustice. But the flow-down effect, where broken systems damage individuals, is equally important. Neoliberal capitalism creates a global economy in which modern slavery thrives, the demand for cheap consumer goods creates supply chain contracts that necessitate the exploitation of cheap labour. Cultural and religious beliefs normalise the exploitation of women, children and certain social castes. The same beliefs fantasise sexuality in a way that promotes a wide variety of sexual abuse. Tribal identity politics position the pure and noble, quote, us – above the primitive and aggressive, quote, them. These systemic sins propagate poverty, fear, greed, and a lack of respect for others. They cultivate a body of people who are vulnerable to being exploited and a body of people vulnerable to becoming exploiters. Do not think of modern slavery as an extreme example that we can hold at arm's length. It is a predictable result of our individual and corporate sin. Modern slavery affects us all, even those of us who are neither traffickers nor trafficked because we are beneficiaries of this system. Our prosperity in the so-called first world is enabled by the exploitation of other people and the earth. Furthermore, we all hold in our hearts the same tendency as human traffickers to abuse, exploit and coerce others for our own purposes. Modern slavery is a massive social problem and one we have been unable to eliminate despite enormous efforts. In the context of such horrendous abuses, what does mercy look like? Certainly it means healing the harm experienced by millions of victims and survivors, but could mercy also play a role in disrupting the sin, the individual and the social brokenness, that perpetuates their harm? In the Old Testament, sin is embedded in what Borg refers to as the temple story, or the priestly story. The story of sin is interwoven with concepts of impurity, guilt, uncleanness, along with cleansing, covering, and sacrifice. Controlled by the priesthood, one's ritual purification depends on prescribed sacrifices at the temple. The question being addressed was how to overcome one's unworthiness before God, because it seemed that nothing impure could survive in the presence of God. How could people be cleansed of their impurity in order to become acceptable to God? In the New Testament letter to the Hebrews, the structure of sacrifice is turned on its head. The traditional macro story of sin requires the unworthy person to hand something of value to the priest for it to be violently destroyed. But in Hebrews, Jesus is depicted as the priest who offers himself as the sacrifice and whose life turns out be indestructible as mentioned before jesus gave himself for us in much the same way as parents give themselves for the sake of their children such self-sacrifice differs starkly from the coercive violent sacrifice it superseded in this way the death of jesus subverts both the priesthood and the requirement for sacrifice paul's interpretation is that quote in jesus we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. That's Ephesians 1.7. In other words, the mercy of God, God's acts of extreme kindness to us through Christ, motivated by God's compassion toward the brokenness of our sin, results in our forgiveness. Through mercy, everyone is acceptable. Because Christ is the High Priest, we can stand with confidence before God, knowing that we will receive mercy. In God's mercy, being accepted and loved is not dependent on what we deserve or do not deserve, but on who God is. The mercy of the incarnated Christ points us to a God who offers grace to all, even the ungrateful, the wicked and enemies. The mercy of the resurrection restores life to all people subheading. Overlapping but distinct. The prototypical process of forgiveness starts with someone injuring another. That may be a physical injury, some form of psychological mistreatment, a betrayal, the theft of some object, some libel that disparages the person's reputation, or a myriad of other wounds. At some point, the person who caused the damage acknowledges their guilt and shows regret for what they did. Ideally, they attempt to reverse the damage to the extent that it is possible. From the other side, the injured person offers to release the offender from their debt. In this process, the damage is neither condoned, forgotten, nor ignored. Rather, the guilt is acknowledged, but resentment is released, and any right to retribution foregone. The process of forgiveness is rarely as smooth as that. It becomes more complicated when it is between groups rather than individuals, and when the damage carries over from one generation to the next. In such cases, who has the relevant standing to repent or to release? Formal acts of clemency by judicial officials or heads of government present other complexities. One of the two parties may have died, in which case either the repentance or the release cannot occur. There may be no repentance, and yet the injured party may sense a need to let go of the emotional trauma for their own health. Nevertheless, the process of injury, repentance and release forms the prototype from which such complexities are variations. At the centre of the process of forgiveness is the release of resentment by the injured person. When we've been hurt by another, That initial hurt is multiplied and prolonged by our own emotional response. We continue to give power to our abusers as long as we carry the anger and resentment within us. To release ourselves from that ongoing hurt we need to forgive the other. In many people's minds that is the whole of forgiveness. For them the purpose of forgiveness is to deal with the trauma of holding a grudge and occurs independent of the other person. If the ability to release my own resentment relies on anything the other does, such as repenting, or promises to do, then I'm still under their power, held captive by their attitude toward me. Although there is good reason to define forgiveness as the release of resentment, God's merciful response in the macro story about sin goes beyond that step. In the Bible, forgiveness is more than a one-sided internal psychological act by the injured person, but always relational and directed toward reconciliation. That applies to the forgiveness between two people, just as much as it does to the forgiveness between us and God. Forgiveness is the path through which reconciliation is achieved. Both forgiveness and mercy seek to move us towards shalom, but while there is overlap between mercy and forgiveness, the two are distinct concepts. One difference is that forgiveness and mercy express different emotional directions, whereas forgiveness might be largely the overcoming of resentment, acts of mercy aim toward the virtue of compassion. Another difference is that you can show mercy to anyone as a compassionate response to their need, but you can only forgive someone who has injured you. At least in the standard process of forgiveness, if person A injures person B, then a third person, C, cannot step in and say that A is forgiven. There are exceptions, such as when a representative of a group forgives a past crime committed against that group, but in general, to forgive, you must have some personal standing in the matter. Some acts of mercy are not acts of forgiveness, because mercy is a response to a wider variety of needs than just to guilt. When we see someone in need... That need may be of many kinds, a broken relationship, a broken arm, a broken heart, a broken promise, a broken bank account. When the need relates to broken relationships, the guilt of wrongdoing, abuse, exploitation, mistrust or self-condemnation, then the form mercy naturally takes might involve forgiveness. Forgiveness itself may be the extreme kindness expressed in mercy. However, although forgiveness is one form of mercy, many other forms of mercy are expressed toward other types of need. An example is Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. The person accosted by robbers was shown mercy by the Samaritan, not because of any guilt or sin that required forgiveness, but because he'd been beaten until he was half dead and required medical assistance. Conversely, some acts commonly labelled as forgiveness are not acts of mercy. In financial contexts, Forgiving a debt occurs when a creditor releases someone from the obligation to repay the debt. That may occur for several reasons, but normally because the effort to enforce the debt is perceived to be too great to be worthwhile. In other contexts, letting go of resentment is intended to unburden the injured party rather than for the sake of the guilty party. In either context, the act of forgiveness is not motivated by compassion for the person who is forgiven and so it is not truly merciful. Interestingly, in the case where the difficult step of releasing resentment is taken for the sake of one's own well-being, it may count as an act of forgiveness towards the other and simultaneously an act of mercy towards oneself. In 2020, a picture was posted on the Reddit website with this caption, "'Kid had an old bike with no brakes and dented someone's car.' A few days later, the car owner surprised the kid with a new bike End of quote. that is a great example of both mercy and forgiveness. The car owner's action implicitly announced forgiveness for the damage the boy caused, but he went further than that, looking beyond the accident, he saw that the boy could not afford a safe bike, so he compassionately met that need with a surprising gift in the Old Testament. Forgiveness is often associated with the prerequisite of a sacrificial payment. On the surface, at least, a transaction is implied in which people sin against God, that people sacrifice grain or an animal to God, and consequently, God forgives their sin. By the end of the Old Testament writings, however, this model has been questioned, and in the New Testament we see the earlier partial resolution of sin via sacrifice, superseded by the work of Jesus. Jesus forgave sins without the need for any death or other sacrificial payment. He simply declared forgiveness to people or requested his Father to forgive them. After Jesus' resurrection, his followers proclaim the same forgiveness in his name. Numerous New Testament passages assert that the life, death and resurrection of Jesus add something important to the macro story of sin and forgiveness. During the final meal with his disciples, Jesus spoke of his blood being poured out for the forgiveness of sins. After the resurrection, Jesus explained that the intention of his suffering and resurrection was always that repentance and forgiveness would be proclaimed to everyone. In later theological reflection, Paul noted that even though we were dead in our sin, God made us alive with Christ. He wrote that although we all sinned, we are also all forgiven. Quote, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Even prior to the writings of the New Testament, God's mercy is linked to the forgiveness of sins. Take, for instance, this verse from the Wisdom of Solomon. You are merciful to all, for you can do all things, and you overlook people's sin so that they may repent. End of quote. The fascinating insight here is that it does not say you overlook people's sin who repent, but that in mercy God overlooks their sin so that they may repent. That is, mercy can act preemptively as a disruption that can promote repentance. Mercy is God's compassionate response to the underlying moral need rather than a response to a person's acknowledgement of that need. An example of pre-emptive forgiveness was to be seen after the tragic death of four children in Sydney in 2020. The four were walking along a suburban footpath when a drunk driver ran into them. The parents of three of those children almost immediately announced that they forgave the driver. They had been raised with this biblical understanding and embedded in a community that practiced the virtues of forgiveness and mercy. That deeply ingrained theology enabled them to react to the tragedy with forgiveness, not as a short-lived reflex but a sustained commitment. In the midst of enormous grief, they have established a foundation whose aim is, quote, to increase community awareness of the power of forgiveness to transform human relationships and to provide resilience toward human flourishing, end of quote. The same automatic response was shown by an Amish community after the murder of five of their children in 2006. On that day, a man entered their small school in rural Pennsylvania with a shotgun and a handgun. He told everyone to leave except for ten young girls. An hour later, three of those girls were dead. Another two died of their wounds in hospital. Their attacker shot himself dead before the police could intervene. The Amish trace their heritage back to the 16th century Anabaptists and have always emphasised forgiveness and non-violence. Although the schoolhouse shooting was a more extreme situation than anyone in that community had ever experienced, they were still able to remain faithful to that practice of preemptive forgiveness. What can forgiveness look like in such an extreme context? Given the deaths of both victims and attacker, There could be no repentance, no release of resentment by the immediate victims, and no reconciliation. Nevertheless, amidst grief that would be unbearable to most of us, the parents and surrounding community did not react with condemnation or malice. Instead, they prayed and cried, supported each other, and assisted the emergency teams. A grandfather helped the young boys come to grips with the trauma by saying to them, We must not think evil of this man. End of quote. The community modeled forgiveness, quote, determined to make sure their children did not get caught up in the cycle of hate and retribution. End of quote. When you hate someone, it's very difficult to feel compassion toward them. The extensive media reporting of the events frequently voiced surprise at the Amish ability to forgive. Anyone familiar with the Anabaptist tradition would not have been so surprised. As we shall see in Dirk Willem's story, the ability to extend forgiveness and mercy to people in moments of crisis arises from a habitual posture and regular practice with smaller incidents. More than any words could convey, the faith of the Amish was on display through the way they cared for the shooter's wife. From the very first day, the community, including the parents of the murdered girls, offered her comfort, practical support. And protected her from unwanted media attention. In an interview years later, she said, quote, "It was amazing. It was one of those moments during the week where my breath was taken away, but not because of the evil, but because of the love." End of quote. In the way I have been using the terms in this book, the actions toward the shooter's wife were not examples of forgiveness, but of mercy. The Amish community could forgive the shooter, in the sense that they did not hold on to resentment, but there was nothing to forgive the wife, since she had done them no injury. Their gift of extreme kindness to her was not in response to her guilt, but a merciful response to her own grief, and to the practical hardship she faced in continuing to care for her children under intense public scrutiny. Subheading. Accepting mercy and forgiving yourself. One crucial component of mercy is the act of accepting it. Mercy can be thwarted by a person's inability or unwillingness to receive it. This limitation is most clearly seen in people who cannot forgive themselves. This seems to me to be the only sense in which mercy can be viewed as conditional. Even God cannot, or at least will not, force someone to accept mercy. God is committed to being limited by our free will. God woos but does not coerce us. God knocks, but we can refuse to open the door. Consequently, even unconditional mercy can be refused, and that possibility of refusal imposes a condition on mercy's efficacy. In the normal course of childhood development, we receive mercy and forgiveness thousands of times. Through those experiences, we learn both that we are loved and that we are not self-sufficient. Physically and psychologically, we need a supporting community. We need friends and family who pick us up when we fall and who forgive us when we inevitably hurt them. Underlying that experience is our individual and communal need for the multi-layered kindness of God. Every good thing we have comes from God, including God's compassion. The God who cares for every sparrow values us enough to die for us. Having received mercy and forgiveness ourselves, we become able to show mercy toward others' needs and even forgiveness to those who have hurt us. But what happens when that formative process is broken, when someone matures without having learned to receive mercy? Some, perceiving the world to be a harsh place, toughen themselves and don't give a damn about anyone else. Another outcome can be seen in people who reach down to others from a safe distance. Unfamiliar with receiving kindness, they wrap themselves in protective superiority and take pride in needing no one. That can lead to pity for others in the Nietzschean sense, contemptuous rather than compassionate, patronizing rather than merciful. Alternatively, people who grow up without receiving mercy and forgiveness can infer that they are of no value, unloved and unlovable having internalized that belief about themselves, they may be unable to see the value of others. Their self-protection mechanism may not be to feel superior, but to cling tightly to everything they can gain for themselves, and consequently only ever give when they are expecting to profit from it. Others might not approach giving with such a transactional mentality, but with a certain type of hypocrisy that outwardly proclaims purity, virtue, even holiness, while simultaneously feeling ashamed and worthless. An inability to deal with one's own inadequacies can be projected judgmentally onto others. On the other hand, those who have recognized their own need for help and forgiveness also recognize that are not superior to others in need. They can offer the same help and forgiveness to others without judgment and without the arrogance of superiority, but in humility As peers. Jesus told his disciples that they should not expect to receive forgiveness unless they were willing to forgive others. But the converse is equally true. In many cases people deny forgiveness to others because of their own struggle to receive forgiveness and to forgive themselves. Giving and receiving are inextricably linked. A frequent reason for not being able to give or receive forgiveness is shame which Brené Brown defines as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Shame can make us unable to accept kindness from others because we feel unworthy of it. Shame can prevent us from forgiving ourselves. When shame remains hidden, it can gnaw away at us and manifest in addiction, depression, anger, eating disorders and aggression. We all feel shame at times. What makes us ashamed and what we do with that feeling influence our ability to feel empathy. Without empathy, we cannot respond with forgiveness or mercy to the needs of others. One initiative of the Forgiveness Project is an intense group-based prison program called Restore, which aims to explore how to heal, restore and rehumanize people by addressing the destructive influence of shame and trauma on the lives they have lived. For prisoners, shame is a recurring experience. It may have played a hand in motivating their crime. It would have been felt throughout the process of their arrest, trial and conviction. It is driven home to them throughout their prison sentence and follows them doggedly after their release. During restore, a group of men or women serving in prison volunteer to spend four full days listening to storytellers who have either been victims of harm or served time in prison as a result of perpetrating harm. As the facilitators model their own vulnerability and strengths, they create a safe space that encourages honest, open and mutually empathetic conversations. Participants are supported to express their feelings of hurt, pain, remorse, regret, sorrow, grief, and loss, while sharing their own stories with the whole group. Shame is the key theme of the program. Restore draws on Brown's shame resilience theory, in the belief that dealing with shame can release people to rethink and reset their life trajectory. Restore does not seek to resolve their difficulties, but promotes a curious and inquiring approach to ask questions, such as, if we had lived each other's lives, could we have done what the other did? We often hope to see signs of remorse in an accused person during their court case, but the experience of restore facilitators is that remorse often becomes possible only after shame has been addressed. Offenders may need to deeply engage with their own experience as victims before they can understand the impact of their actions on the people they have harmed. Once they recognize that, prisoners may actually see positive value in their incarceration. For some, Prison provides a safer place than they are used to, and within that safety, they can take the inward journey through shame and victimhood to remorse and self-forgiveness. Programs such as Restore use kindness as the bridge from shame to self-forgiveness. Showing offenders that they are valued and heard acts as a catalyst for personal change. Such a gift disrupts their preconceptions, creating an opportunity to make sense of their past. And transform their future. Their success demonstrates how mercy can act as the antidote to shame. What can one do for someone who is unable to accept mercy or to forgive themselves? If that someone is yourself, perhaps start by sifting through childhood experiences to identify early examples of kindness and unkindness. Was forgiveness ever shown to you as a child? On what basis were you punished? Of what were you made to feel ashamed? Was kindness or love only given conditionally? Were there times you showed kindness and it backfired? What have significant others said about you? Have you been told you're a worthless waste of space who doesn't deserve kindness? Have you committed some unforgivable sin? Were you told that accepting mercy makes you inferior or a failure? Does receiving always make you feel in debt? is the need to receive a sign of weakness or failure so many of us have suffered under guilt-driven preaching that constantly tells us god loves us but but we are never good enough but we must strive to do better but our sin killed jesus but nothing imperfect can ever survive in god's presence but all our best deeds are just filthy rags if that has been your experience then hear the good news of jesus God loves you. Full stop. No buts. God cares for every sparrow, and you are much more precious to God than sparrows. God is for you, not against you. Psychologically, that may be a difficult truth to digest, especially if your experience of church and the attitudes projected onto you by friends and family have been the opposite. However, there's a colourful world worth seeking, On the other side of the truth that you are loved. It is a world beyond shame in which all are valued, where mercy circulates around a network of reciprocity and where everyone has the opportunity to flourish. Jesus called it the kingdom of heaven and asked his followers to pray for and live toward that kingdom becoming real on earth. It is a strange kingdom, nothing like any other kingdom ever seen on earth, because it has a strange king who consistently gives up power and privilege. In this kingdom, there are still challenges and failures, but it is a place where God's mercy is made tangible as the challenges are faced together and the failures are covered by grace. On the other hand, if there's someone who is unable to accept mercy or to forgive themselves, it's not you but another, Keep disrupting their assumptions by showing mercy and forgiveness to them anyway. Be a role model for them. Show them that they are loved and valued. As Reniero Cantalamessa observed, quote, A real change of heart will take place only when, first and foremost, people discover that they are loved for themselves and are precious in the eyes of God who, in every case, will never cease loving them. Communicating this truth is the loftiest duty of the church and is the best way to preach mercy. End of quote. Stop being concerned about whether they deserve it or not and just be kind to them. See if they are willing to talk about their backstory to learn what hurt them so much in the past that they now fall into fight or flight modes. When they test you by doing something to hurt you, call them out and talk about what happened, but forgive them. As Sarah Durham Wilson wrote, quote, The way you alchemize a soulless world is by treating everyone as if they were sacred until the sacred in them remembers. End of quote. Is that not what Jesus did for Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus' true nature had been shrouded by shame, but Jesus' mercy infused intervention lifted the shroud. By affirming that Zacchaeus was a child of Abraham, and inviting himself to dinner, Jesus drew out from Zacchaeus a latent goodness that had always been there. I'm well aware that the last few paragraphs are seriously inadequate. The internal and interpersonal psychology is far too complex for such brief advice. But the first principle is to foster the recognition that we are all loved deeply and unconditionally by God. Because of God's love, we are able to love ourselves and others. The second principle, when someone's history has taught them they are unloved, or that mercy and forgiveness are impossible, is to demonstrate mercy and forgiveness patiently and persistently to them. Subheading, overcoming the power imbalance. I have touched on the issue of power already, but in the context of forgiveness something further can be said. There is a kind of thinking that requires Christians to forgive, as a moral necessity, and consequently turns it into an imposed and burdensome law. Whereas showing mercy is usually seen as optional because it goes above and beyond what can be morally required, forgiveness is often seen as a special case. Indeed, Jesus himself said that if you do not forgive, then you will not be forgiven. One of the benefits of forgiveness is that it can unburden both parties, releasing the guilty party from their guilt, as well as releasing the injured party from the stress of carrying anger and hatred. Unforgiveness can eat away at you in a very destructive manner and can perpetuate a disempowered state of victimhood. However, when forgiveness is coerced, when a person is told that they must forgive, forgiveness itself can become an act of self-destruction. If a person is counselled before they are ready that they must forgive, that counsel is itself an act of power and one that produces further injury. The advice implies that the injured party is guilty of unforgiveness and casts them into the untenable position of being a victim of a double injury while simultaneously needing forgiveness themselves. On the other hand, withholding forgiveness can also create a power imbalance. By choosing not to forgive, the injured party can force the guilty party to remain in debt, prolonging their possible remorse and their need to repay. Contemporary philosopher Slavoj Žižek adds to the complexity in a challenge to Christian theology that requires some response. Žižek calls himself a Christian atheist, by which he means that he does not believe in the existence of a supreme being who created this world, but nevertheless finds something compelling in the message of Christ. He views Jesus' abandonment on the cross as a point of rupture in the very essence of God, that God is abandoned by God, and hence, even within the concept of God, there is a fundamental lack. He writes that, quote, This total abandonment by God is the point at which Christ becomes fully human, the point at which the radical gap that separates God from man is transposed into God himself. End of quote. In an essay titled Love Without Mercy, Zizek describes what he sees as a problematic power dynamic Within the notion of mercy and attempts to show how a new concept of God is needed to surmount that problem. Of importance to me is the question of whether that problem can be surmounted without throwing away what I see as crucial to the meaningful concept of God, namely God's personhood. In this essay, Zizek uses the term mercy, but rather than the concept of mercy I've been developing in this book, he's actually referring to forgiveness. The inexplicable gesture of undeserved pardon. He interprets traditional Christianity as affirming that, We, humans, were born in sin. We cannot ever repay our debts and redeem ourselves through our own acts. Our only salvation lies in God's mercy in His supreme sacrifice. Although that may seem like a freeing act, Zizek claims that, it is precisely through not demanding from us the price for our sin, through paying this price for us himself, that the Christian God of mercy establishes itself as the supreme super ego agency. I paid the highest price for your sins, and you are thus indebted to me forever. End of quote. For Zizek, then, every expression of mercy or forgiveness is an act of power. He believes that mercy inevitably places the receiver in a position of inferiority and debt, and furthermore that this is shown absolutely by the mercy or forgiveness of God. Neither Zizek nor I want to allow that power imbalance to be the final word. I'll say a bit more about how Zizek overcomes the problem, and then something about my own resolution. Recall that Zizek understands the core Christian message as undermining the traditional metaphysical concept of God, that through Christ is revealed the true nature of God as lacking, as self-divided, that God is not at one with God, and that the absolute is not an all-knowing being, but inescapable unknowing. Quote, This divine self-abandonment, this impenetrability of God to himself, Thus signals God's fundamental imperfection. End of quote. To Zizek, that's not a failing. Instead, the imperfection of God is precisely what enables a conception of love that overcomes the power imbalance of mercy or forgiveness, a love beyond mercy. Quote, love is always love for the other insofar as he is lacking. We love the other because of his limitation, helplessness, ordinariness, even. In contrast to the pagan celebration of the divine or human perfection, the ultimate secret of Christian love is perhaps that it is the loving attachment to the other's imperfection. And this Christian legacy, often obfuscated, is today more precious than ever. Whereas a traditional view of mercy or forgiveness inevitably positions the giver as superior to the receiver, to Zizek, The imperfection of God makes it possible to experience love without that power imbalance and without the ensuing debt. It seems to me that the same outcome can be achieved without sacrificing an orthodox view of God. As discussed in chapter 4, love and mercy arise from the Trinitarian understanding of God. God can show love to God and subsequently mercy to the created world because mercy is not always about guilt and forgiveness mercy is a caring response to compassion in the context of relationship and community. The central insight of Christianity is not, as Zizek claims, that through Jesus we come to understand the imperfection of God, but that through Jesus we understand God's desire to be in solidarity with us. The incarnation, God with us, reveals God's mercy as part of the network of reciprocity within which the gift of mercy can be shared without superiority or debt. God can and does walk among us in humility, so that mercy is expressed and experienced in a network of reciprocity among peers. Although equal with God, Jesus humbled himself to live among us, even to the point of death. This does not mean that Jesus gave up godness, but that in the Incarnation Jesus gave up the divine power imbalance in order to show true godness. Mercy and forgiveness are most definitely acts of power in that they seek to energize change, but always power with rather than power over. Rather than creating or reinforcing a dominant structure, forgiveness is a true reflection of love, a gift, given and received as part of an ongoing relationship. When we hold to the ideals of justice, mercy, and humility, forgiveness becomes a relational dance that frees both parties and promotes shalom. Subheading, something to consider. What wrongs do you find most difficult to forgive? Does this chapter raise any memories that you want to do something about? chapter of Disrupting Mercy has been narrated by Matthew C. Clarke. Other chapters are also available from the usual podcast distributors. You can also find them along with more details about the authors at turningteardropsintojoy.com. If you'd like to join a discussion about the book and share your own experiences of mercy, search for the Disrupting Mercy group on Facebook.